You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Parker Silbert, who is using Phoenix and Elixir to power the licensing and demo server for Open. Parker, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site? Uh, sure. So I'm Parker Selbert. I live outside of Chicago. Um, I run a little consultancy with my wife. And in addition to consulting with some clients around the world, uh, we started off the project for Oban. Um, so Oban is an Elixir tool that is a background job processor that's based, built on Postgres and offers a whole bunch of different features. And so there's a base version of that, as well as a web UI, and more recently, a pro version. Okay. And when it comes to the pro version, uh, the site we're going to be talking about today controls the licensing aspect of that, right? Like all the billing? It does. Uh, it controls the billing, um, the marketing for it, um, serving up the licensing, and then hooking it into hacks and some other things that, that make the whole process work. Nice. So you mentioned we here, does she also develop the project or does she do like documentation or something else? Um, she does do a little bit of that. Um, most of the time it's a, a lot of advisement, um, but there's been some hands-on coding and reviewing and stuff like that here and there too. Very cool. And for this licensing server aspect, because I know Open was around for quite a while now, uh, how long has the service been up for, for the licensing part? Uh, the licensing part came a little bit later. So uh, Open started in January of last year and then it was initially released as an you know as a forum post kind of thing to the public um, in March and around that time there was already a spike of a live view kind of thing going on but live view wasn't out yet and it really wasn't ready for prime time and so it started off as a beta and to demo it um, the site went up so the open pro server uh, it wasn't pro at the time. It was just a server that was a demo server uh, with some kind of marketing language. So that's been up since then, uh, just running with a, a few a few processes so people could go in and play with it and check out how things were working. Yeah, I was always a fan of seeing that demo page because it was really cool to see things bounce around and it was so easy to just filter things and sort things. Yeah, very nice job on that one. Thank you. So... I mean, you don't need to get into like revenue numbers or specifics, but when it comes to the licensing part, I mean, are we like how many transactions do you typically deal with here? Uh, so I would say the average daily transactions is slightly below one. Uh, so there, it's I mean, the Elixir ecosystem is not that huge, um, and especially trying to break into something that is kind of new. There aren't really any licensed packages, which is kind of an interesting thing to talk about, just the feasibility of trying to make that work. But um, so on, on some days, you know, we'll get maybe five sales and on a lot of days, they're just zero. Right. So just a handful here and there. And yeah, no, it is definitely a tricky thing because it's like, I don't know, there's this concept or stigma or I don't even know what you want to label it as, right? It's like you're a developer and you're going to be using an open source project. Like you expect everything for free, full-time support, like an amazingly upkept library. But sometimes if you want to get that polish, you know, it requires uh, a fee of some sort. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to even make it so that 
Um, you can justify the time, you know, because you're not spending it on paid client work uh, or whatever your day job happens to be. We all started this. I mean, open source developers started it because they want to make something kind of as a hobby. But when you have people that are using it in production and really relying on it, you want to be able to dedicate more time to it. And so you have to have something to make that sustainable so that you don't get burned out. And, you know, you want to keep coming back and, and working on that more and more. Yeah. And even like want, it's like the opposite of that is like, well, you know, you still need to eat and pay your rent and do other things as well. It's like you kind of have to have some type of income if you want to continue to do that. Even if you, you know, even if you're passionate to do it without the income. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is sort of an obvious question here, but like what motivated you to use Phoenix and Elixir in the end? Well, for this, I mean, in, I guess there's a, a broader kind of background question there, which is that I've been using Elixir since 2013 and I love the community. I love the language. And so that's what drove me to build open in the first place, uh, you know, to scratch my own itch. But because it's it's an elixir, there's really no other choice. <laughs> so it made sense to use to use Phoenix for that. Right. Do you recall? I know it was been about a year since it, it shipped, but or a little bit longer than that. What was the development process for you when you built Open itself? Like, how long did it go from just a concept in your mind to being something you just push up to GitHub? Uh, well, it started out as a totally different project itself. So uh, one of my primary clients, I've actually worked with them for nine years, uh, is DScout, which is a mobile research company in Chicago. And that started out as a Rails shop. And in the past four years, we'd slowly been migrating things over to Elixir. And as part of that, we had all these jobs that were running in Sidekick, and in fact, using Sidekick Enterprise and, and Pro features. And we needed to start moving those over. So there was no decently equipped background job runner that was compatible with Sidekick. There are other ones out there like XQ, um, but they didn't have the features that we needed. And so I started a different library called Kick, implemented it as compatible with Sidekick as I could, and started running into more and more difficulty with that. And around that time, Redis Streams came out, which is kind of like Kafka Streams, where you have this infinite data structure that you can kind of uh, pull things off of and consume parts of. And uh, I tried building things on streams to be much more consistent. And what that ended up proving was that the streams weren't flexible enough to do everything that was needed. And instead, uh, it made me realize that SQL would be a much better fit. All these transactional kind of issues that we had, um, data persistence issues would be solved by that. And so Open started off as a spike for, to uh, streams and then over to SQL. And so that's kind of what kicked it off. The other big part there was getting rid of all of the issues we'd had in rolling out Kick and switching the way that it was tested and developed. So before we even used it, we being DScout, even used it in production, um, it had been used by the community for four or five months. And a lot of the other things had been ironed out by other people who were early adopters. Nice. Yeah, I'm really happy that uh, in the end you chose Postgres as a backend for this because, you know, you typically don't, you don't think that Postgres is going to be a great, like, tech choice for, like, a queue or background worker backends, but it ends up being amazing in practice. Like, I don't really know, like, what are some of your larger scale customers who are, are pushing things through it? Because from an outside, you know, perspective, you might think, like, well, because we're using Postgres on the backend, then it's going to be slow. But 
I mean, I find like I can, you know, push like hundreds of things through it per minute and it's like not even breaking a sweat. Uh, I know firsthand from a few companies. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say who they are. I mean, they wouldn't be that mysterious given the number of public companies that are using Elixir, you know, in the ecosystem. But um, I know of a few that are doing millions of jobs a day, um, up to three million jobs a day, um, all, all using Postgres. Um, and so the, the raw insert and throughput is pretty decent in testing that I've done uh, with continuous inserts and continuous jobs running. Um, it's able to easily do 25,000 jobs a second. You know, the, the real issues come from um, vacuuming the table and handling the indexes and stuff. But as of Postgres 12 and the great re-index concurrently kind of stuff, um, it's really easy to just periodically clean stuff up and do a light vacuum. And there's almost no load and very little bloat. Yeah, that's amazing. So going back to this licensing server, are there some specific features of Elixir that, or Phoenix specifically, that you're using that really helped you build that type of app? Sure. So what was great is going back from working on so many APIs uh, to something that doesn't have any APIs at all. It's just a standard server rendered kind of system. A, a big part of it initially was just server rendered templates. A few things that stood out was instead of instead of making a Rails app where you had a strange integration with Webpack through Webpacker, because Phoenix, you know, it, it comes with with no feelings about this. Uh, I actually started off not using Webpacker Webpacker at all and just using um, a straight little make command to build all the CSS um, and style sheets and and packaged JavaScript up and stuff. Um, eventually that wasn't going to work anymore, um, especially when switched from doing some hand done styles to using Tailwind. And so integrating Webpack into that whole flow was really seamless. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that you're using Tailwind. That's something I've been using recently with uh, much success. Pretty cool way to take on CSS. So you're using that then for your own private backend for the licensing part and also the demo server that's public for open or no? The new demo, yeah. So the original demo was based on just some other loose style stuff I had and it was kind of handwritten and it wasn't using Tailwind at all. And it made for some inconsistency. Uh, it had some styles that were uh, utility classes and then other ones that were a bit more semantic. And what I found is as the production server, as the Open Pro site um, was rolling out, I just missed all the, the tailwind little bits of functionality. And so the more recent um, Open Web 2.0, which is the one that's live on the site right now, is totally restyled and is all built on Tailwind. And they both use um, the post CSS kind of cleanup so that the amount of um, CSS that's shipped, the gzip version is like less than 20 kilobytes. It's really small. Yeah, that's an amazing feature of Tailwind where, you know, if you didn't run it through that, you end up with this massive, massive payload, but tools can do things to make it go from massive, massive to not massive at all. Yeah, which is great. The previous version, uh, because it wasn't using the little semantic classes, it, you couldn't tell which ones were used and which ones weren't. And so PostCSS wasn't effective in that way. Right. So this demo server, uh, you are using LiveView there, right? 
Yes, it uses Live View only uh, in the demo part it is. The, the rest of the site does not. The rest of the site uses um, straight HTML, you know, server-side rendering and back and forth kind of stuff. Right, so maybe just to paint a picture to folks listening, when, or me too, uh, when it comes to the licensing part, I mean, have you built like a custom web front end for that? Or do you kind of just, is it like notification based? Like how, how does that work in the end? Okay, so the, the licensing part on the front end, um, all the data is stored in a simple users kind of table. It started out as a way for people to sign up for a beta. And so the users table was built up over time with people submitting who they were and a little bit about their GitHub and how they wanted to use it. And then that would trigger an email notification uh, to my wife and I. And then we could go online and we could look and review to see if it was uh, a spam request or if it was somebody who hadn't put in legitimate information and we could manually accept it. And then that would kick off the license, which I'd like to talk about in a minute. Then when we were ready to start selling licenses, we kept that same information um, and expanded the table just a little bit so that now we could accept payment information as well. And so it's backed by Stripe and uses the little uh, Stripe web kitty kind of thing on the front. I'm, I'm not saying that the right way. I don't remember what it's called. The, you know, the, yeah, elements, I think. Yeah. Um, and then in the back end, it manages setting up a subscription for them um, and then integrates with some webhooks and stuff. All of the things in the background, sending the emails, um, setting up the subscription, that also uses Open, um, which is kind of a fun use case of um, prefix support. We use two different instances of Open. There's the one that powers the demo site, which anybody can get into and mess with. Uh, people can cancel jobs or scale things. And so, of course, we don't want to expose any real customer information there. All of the jobs that show up there are generated using faker data. So they have this element of randomization to them. So it can burst, insert a whole bunch of jobs or maybe just one job. And then it sleeps for a little bit. And it does that for all of the various types and all the different queues so that no matter what people come in and do, um, canceling or killing or scaling down or pausing, they'll just be this constant stream to sort of fuzz the whole system and prove it out. But in addition to that public version, um, there's a private open that runs as well. So it runs inside of a different schema prefix inside of the same database, and it runs only the, the private jobs. And so those are the ones that are sending emails and talking to Stripe and doing updates like that. Interesting. Yeah, that's a pretty cool use case for using uh, prefixes and, and schemas with Postgres. Do you find that being a popular feature that other folks are using as well? You know, not for that specifically, but the ability to namespace your jobs at the schema level? I, I think so. Um, it was something that was requested by other users. And I've, I've heard from a few people that they have a different prefix per client. And so they run just a different supervision tree per client. Um, it was something that for a little while I just had to use um, tasks, you know, async kind of tasks to do the email delivery and stuff because it wasn't ready to do two different open instances in the same place. Or We didn't want to mingle the data. There's no way you want to show that to the people that are coming to, to see the site. So it had to wait a little bit. So fortunately, that was something that we got out of just supporting a, a user request. Nice. Yeah, you're really on the ball when it comes to those things. Because I remember making a post in the forums and I asked you about 
uh, executing periodic tasks like on a schedule, you know, like every Tuesday do this. And you're like, oh, that's a cool idea. And then like four days later, you're like, by the way, here it is. Like <laughs> the turnaround time was very fast of getting a feature into it. I, that one, I think, was a lucky coincidence uh, because I had built out the cron stuff. And at the time, I was weighing whether it should be a separate plugin or if it should be something that was that was integrated. And um, it seems to be one of the things that people actually tout as a reason to use Open in the first place. It's good that it got integrated in the end. But um, I, I love that it seemed like it was a four-day turnaround for that. That's great. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, I do recall you mentioning there was a separate repo for it, and then you, you just had to merge it in. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny with the Elixir world. Like, I don't want to make this episode about like background jobs in general. We'll focus on you know your licensing and demo server. But the word on the street is like you don't even need to use any tool like Open if you just use Elixir because it has so many great async things built into the language itself. But you know, when it comes to the end of the day, it's like typically you want like really interesting things like periodic tasks and like uniqueness and all sorts of other things that are not easy to implement. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to see that there's like a first class ability to to reach for some library in Elixir just to solve those problems for you. Yeah, you could say the same thing about uh, Ruby or Python as well. Like, well, you've got process fork uh, or you've got, uh, you know, thread new. So why do you need to have some other dedicated thing to handle this? Um, and it's because it's all the different edge cases and the failure scenarios and the other nice features on that. Again, you could build a lot of that out. And in Elixir, because of supervision trees and task supervisors, it's a bit nicer and you get much better failure scenarios. But that still doesn't mean that you um, are exempt from possibly losing data or coordinating things across multiple nodes and you know all of the, the tricky parts of asynchronous and distributed code. Yeah. I mean, as someone like me, who's just a web developer, it's like, yeah, I want to focus on executing this task in the background, not developing the mechanism behind actually like the implementation details of that. I just want to use a library and, and be on my way. Yeah, sure. Very cool. So going back to your front end a bit with live view, are you using the latest version of that? Like, do you continuously keep it updated based on the latest release or do you go off of master or something in between maybe? Um, it runs the latest release probably within within a week. That's something I, I watch the repository and watch for releases and then try to bump it. And because LiveView is pre 1.0, there have been plenty of breaking changes that they've made. Most of them are really small. Um, and sometimes it's just a matter of recompiling the, you know, the JavaScript front end and using that. But in other cases, whole features have been swapped out or removed. So a lot of a lot of the development, like the little patch releases, is purely based on bumping the, the Phoenix version. I'm oh, sorry, the Live View version. And along with that, uh, the more recent Phoenix 1.5 release, along with the PubSub 2.0 release, um, there were a bunch of interdependent kind of changes that happened there. And I made sure to stay on top of that because you know people are pretty adventurous in the Elixir community. I think there's just a lot of trust in the quality of the libraries they're using, especially the ones that are maintained by, you know, the, the core team or Jose or, or Chris. So people jump on to um, Phoenix and in live view releases very quickly, you know, once they're released. Yeah, no, definitely. When it comes to using newer things with Elixir and Phoenix specifically, I'm always on the ball too, trying to just keep up with the latest versions. Uh, I really do like though that Phoenix in itself you know, since 1.5, it's like, 
there's not really that much work you need to do to upgrade from like 1.5 to 1.52 or something like that. Like as long as you keep maintaining your app, then it never really gets too crazy, I find at least. At least with like a medium size app. Yeah, I don't I don't think I've spent more than 15 minutes upgrading, you know, since maybe the 1.1, 1.2 kind of days. Right. So by the way, for this licensing slash demo service, do you have this broken up into like umbrella apps or is it just one like main application? There are no umbrella apps. There's one main application. Um, inside that, rather than have separate applications for Stripe and for Hex, those are their own little supervision trees that are kind of, they're totally isolated and they're started as part of the parent supervision tree. Uh, but, and that's something that I think would commonly be broken out either as a library or as part of an umbrella application. But this is all mingled together. So it's using um, context for things like accounts, but it's not breaking up the database is one thing and the demo server is another thing. It's all kind of living together. So speaking of context, do you want to rattle off a few that you have? Sure. I, I might have to look <laughs> slightly. Uh, there really there really aren't that many. Um, most of it is purely around uh, accounts, and then the other part is around licensing. And everything it proxies outside of the primary accounts. Um, one interesting thing there is that um, because there are users, but because it started off as something that was providing beta licenses, there there were no passwords because you would just ask for the beta and you'd get a token that would let you use that it was your license key effectively, and you didn't need a password or anything. And because there were a few hundred people who had been beta users, we didn't want to drop that information or force them to go and choose a new password. Um, so instead of using passwords at all, it uses um, a purely magic token, uh, magic link kind of authentication system. So as long as you control the email, you can get in and, and access your account. So anybody that had one before would just request the magic link and then they could get into the new private space that wasn't there initially when they tried to sign up as a, as a beta user. Interesting. So that gets them authenticated like at the web level, but how does it work for the licensing of the package itself? Like as an end, like I have not subscribed to the pro version, sorry in advance, by the way, but like what does the end user need to do there to get authenticated for that? Uh, um, so the documentation for all that is also hosted on the site uh, and is uh, just is a markdown kind of thing that gets converted to HTML and cleaned up. But the behind the scenes there, it's using hex private organizations, which I believe is kind of a novel use for that. So hex, the you know the the main hex.pm team rolled out private organizations, uh, meaning that you could have in this case an open organization, and then under that organization you can have all of the users you want, and each user pays uh, a monthly fee, and then you can have any private hex packages that you want that are in there. And so open web and open pro are stored as hex packages. And so when I do a, a, a release, they don't go to public hex, they go to private hex. And so anybody that can authenticate against the open organization can freely use and access any of those packages. So the licensing, the way that it works, is that it authorizes um, a key. So it takes, you know, it uses somebody's email primarily as the name of a particular what are they called? 
I have to actually look to see what they're what the term is for it, because uh, the term that we're using, which is a, a license key, is a little bit different. I think it's an auth token essentially, um, and so uh, they submit the email. The background job goes and creates a new license key, which is an auth token inside of Hex, and then we give them that that token, and they use that to authorize against the open organization privately with Hex. In development, you just kind of run one command to authenticate, and then all future use, as long as you're on that same machine, um, you can interact with the private repositories freely. Um, if you're in, if you're using CI, which I'm pretty sure everybody is now, um, then you put that up there as a token, and you let it authenticate on CI, um, and similarly for production. Okay, so it just ends up being like basically one environment variable value that you would set and you're done, basically? Uh, there's a command you have to run. So you set an environment variable. An, an interesting case for this actually is doing a Docker release, um, which I guess I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit, but the whole thing, the whole um, Phoenix application for OpenPro is released through Docker, a Docker build. Um, and as part of that, there's a step, which is to authenticate Open using our own. So even just the release process of Open uh, sorry, the Open Pro server still has to kind of dog food itself and and use the key. Uh, interesting. So what like is this authentication mechanism? Does this just happen at build time, like when you're installing the dependency, or is it something that continuously needs to get checked, like every time you start the app? No, it's it's a it's a build dependency. So it, you get access to download the code, and after that point, it does not phone home. That's something that. I'd considered initially as kind of an anti-piracy kind of mechanism, but considering the size of the community and practicality of actually being able to enforce that versus um, having people's servers phone home, it just didn't seem worth worth it as a trade-off. It's entirely build time. Nice. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that because, I mean, I'm not one of those organizations where I would immediately discount a service that phoned home, but I am you know, pretty privacy oriented. Like that would make me uneasy to know that every time I start the app, then it's going to your server to do something. And it's not because maybe it's you're doing something malicious. It's like, I, I wonder about my site's availability, right? It's like, if I can't contact your server because it's down for whatever reason, like that can't stop my app from starting up. Yes, exactly. And also, I mean, we're not shipping compiled binaries. So anybody can go and look in the source code. And so once somebody has it, there's nothing to stop them from just opening up the file and commenting out that part that was checking for that. And so anything else that you do beyond that, like trying to sign it uh, or sign a license or do that kind of thing, that seems kind of like a cat and mouse game that I'm not really interested in playing. Right. Totally makes sense. Now, you did mention uh, a minute ago that you are using Docker here. Uh, so maybe we can get into like the rest of your tech stack. So, and we'll begin with Docker. Are you using it both in development and production? Not for development, only for production. Um, so we, I use Elixir uh, releases. So the not not the older style release, but you know the was it one point nine uh, mix release kind of thing to generate releases. So I've got a fair bit of confidence that if the release builds, um, and because when you when you build the release, you have to explicitly state which applications are going to be involved in that. You know, if you're relying on something like Faker, which was only available in, in development, uh, initially when trying to run mix release to build the release, it wouldn't start because certain libraries weren't there. So you get a good amount of um, perspective about what 
you know, whether your build is even going to work when you try to deploy it just by using mixed release, even for development. As a, as a check in development, not for development, because you don't get code reloading uh, or that kind of thing. Right, so this is like a preliminary step you would do to like pre-deploy, basically. Right, to make sure that your, your config works. Um, and then as part of that, it's using environment variables as a config provider, uh, as I, I think is a fairly common kind of thing. Um, you know, to make sure that the private hex key is there, that the stripe key is there, that the database URL is there. And so you get kind of a check with doing that as well, that when you try to boot that release, that you have to provide all these variables and that if you do, and it matches your local environment, then you should be able to go into your browser and it will work perfectly fine. But yeah, so it uses, it uses Docker. Uh, it's got a multi-stage Docker build that's happening there. Um, as I mentioned before, it's using Tailwind and a slight bit of JavaScript. So therefore we have to have, um, you know, a whole Node.js NPM kind of install going, but that's done in, in one stage of the Docker environment, uh, build up all the assets and then throw that away. Uh, one of the other great parts is because it's building up the mixed release, we don't have all of the um, Erlang and Elixir and none of the source code is there. So in the end, we have just a minimal Alpine release that's copied over this pre-compiled um, you know, mix release. And so it ends up with a very small build. Interesting. So I am a huge fan of using Docker here, but when it comes to something like Elixir releases, like you mentioned, you're not using Docker in development. Like what was the decision on your end to use Docker in production with this setup? Um, primarily the deployment would be the reason why. Um, so when I started, the idea was actually to release this um, through DigitalOcean using a Kubernetes setup so that it would be running on three nodes. And that proved prohibitively <laughs> difficult to set up <laughs> and was just kind of slowing things down. And so rather than do that, um, I didn't want to get rid of the Docker setup that we had, but uh, so I decided to just deploy on Heroku, which because I have a lot of experience doing that. Um, but because Heroku also has native Docker releases, it's really easy to just build the Docker release, push it up, and then tell Heroku to use that build, that, that, that Docker version now, so or the image, which makes it really convenient to deploy. And I have a lot more confidence in it um, and knowing that it's portable. I can check it locally. I can push it to Gigalixer or something else if I want to. And I know that it's going to run the same exact way on Heroku as it does on the other services. Okay, so on the flip side to that then, uh, what was your reasoning for not using Docker in development? Was it just like code editor support or something else? Uh, no, actually I have no reason not to use Docker in development. <laughs> I, just, I just haven't historically. And the dependencies are pretty small. I can see if there were a bunch of different services or even with multiple different databases or if it was more involved to set up uh, as I keep it running on whatever the you know the, the latest version is the um, the latest elixir in Erlang and uh, node versions are provided by ASDF you know the, the kind of install tool I'm using the same the same Postgres as everywhere else but there's really no reason not to do it for, for build yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Now, going back to the rest of your tech stack, it sounds like you just have Elixir, Node, and Postgres for your database. Is there anything else that runs? No. For this, that's all that runs. Um, the, the bit that gets a little bit tricky, 
as part of developing the primary app, which is called Leasemore, by the way. Uh, I mean, it's developed. It was it's released as GetOpen.pro, and it used to be Open.dev uh, before Diego, the people that make Open Scotch, uh, reached out to us and asked us not to use Open.dev. Um, <laughs> but uh, the name of the server is called Leasemore. So if you ever look in Scotland, where Open the town is, which is a, a bay. In the middle of the bay, there's an island called Leesmore. And so it's kind of just a, a play on the regionality. But the, um, the Elixir application itself is called Leesmore. When developing OpenWeb locally to test out features and, and just you know, restyle things or update it or do whatever, um, we have to switch from using the version that's hosted on HexPM and to use a version that's local. Um, and then because there's now also Open Pro, if we're changing features in Open Pro, it has to use that as well. So there is a little bit of a dance in swapping between an officially hosted hex package and the local kind of path with getting that recom recompilation working there. And some other packages have really helped to make that work uh, because the normal Phoenix live reload doesn't pay attention to packages that are outside of your base directory. And so when you have other packages which are uh, peripheral to it or just adjacent to it, you know, like a dot dot backslash open web kind of thing, it doesn't recompile anything and it doesn't work very well. So use another language, uh, sorry, another library called xsync to make sure that it recompiles and that works really well. Before that, there was a variety of make tasks to sort of um, switch things over and sim link things in and move them back and forth, but that dance isn't necessary anymore. Yeah, very cool. As someone who has developed a couple of libraries outside of Elixir, that is always a tricky problem. It's like, you know, you kind of don't want to have to, yeah, sim link it or just copy it in directly. It's awesome to hear that you have a, a really good solution for that. And it makes me think now that maybe you have some other goodies in your mix file that may have helped build this type of application. Uh, if there are any interesting ones, do you want to just go over a couple of them? Yeah. Um, so for email, and I'll, I'll try to go through just the ones that are pretty interesting or that are something that people ask about or, you know, or I promote. Um, so use Bamboo for sending an email, which is very convenient. Um, there is no built-in background kind of delivery system. So we just build up the emails in a background job and then deliver them through Bamboo. Um, but get that all out of the, the base flow and and it, I mean, it takes it takes a little while to send the email, so you don't want to hold up the request. Um, another one is basic auth. In production, you typically don't want to expose your open dashboard to other people, uh, or in this case, I don't want to expose the admin site. And there are there's no complex kind of user system, so it uses basic auth. Um, the basic auth plug is really easy to set up, and you can even have as many different gated kind of areas as you want. Um, and so that's something that I suggest people use just to wrap around whatever pipeline they happen to have the open dashboard mounted in. It makes use of the hex core package. So the hex team maintains an Erlang library. It's on, it's on hex and it interfaces with hex, but because of the interplay between the rebar team and the hex team, they've tried to make those um, cross-platform tools and pure Erlang. And so there's a great API for interacting with Hex, which is in pure Erlang, and that's called Hex Core. 
inside of Leesmore, there's a wrapper for it that just simplifies a few of the things, like revoking a key, creating a new key. Um, but there's a, it's a great, it's a really well-structured package for that. We use HoneyBadger to report errors. So if people are using the demo and things crash, which happens every once in a while, um, especially after the recent alpha, got a, like a, a free crowdsourced bug bash kind of thing that I know what, where all of the errors came from. Uh, it uses HoneyBadger for reporting. I, I don't have a strong allegiance to HoneyBadger over other things like Sentry. I just happened to have used them for quite some time and I maintained the Elixir package, so it seemed like a good fit. Um, and it also provides a, a nice way to test out recent HoneyBadger upgrades or changes. Uh, another interesting one is Phoenix Markdown. Um, so the docs that are there, which I think will probably be replaced by proper hex docs, but the docs that are there currently are written purely in Markdown and then they're compiled into HTML, you know, just as part of the Elixir compilation step. And it's pretty easy to do that by writing your own little um, compile step, but the Phoenix Markdown one makes it really easy. And then the fun one is Faker. So Faker, which I think comes from the old Ruby library, um, and it's great at generating all kinds of fake data, like emails and addresses and names, um, and then some more industry standard kind of stuff. All of the jobs that are generated and, and show up in the UI are from these fake workers. And so there are certain ones like an account cancellation worker. And so it generates fake data for these things. And then looking for yeah, fake user agents, fake domain names, um, and then other things like foods and recipes. When I had initially done the announcement on the Elixir forum and I posted the screenshot, I got private messages from a bunch of people saying, um, you're, you're revealing your customer's private information uh, in that screenshot. I thought you might want to know that. And it's like, apparently the faker data was good enough that it looked real. And so <laughs> that works. Yeah, no, faker is an amazing library. That's like, it's one of my go-to tools for pretty much any project. I mean, if you just want to see data in development, just to see where your app feels like when you have a couple hundred records in there or whatever, it's a, yeah, a great thing to use. It's kind of funny too. It's like I was recently implementing a full text search and yeah, Faker really helped there because you can't really full text search like lorem ipsum, you know, it's like so similar that it's useless to full text search that. But, you know, I use some combination of the food one. It was like recipes and like superhero names and it was enough to be unique to test the things that I wanted to test. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, a lot of good libraries there, but I don't think I mentioned one about Stripe. So do you just like call their API directly or did you reach for some other library? I phrased this backwards. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't use Stripey Stripe or another Stripe library. Um, somewhat foolishly, just went and wrote my own. And that was partially for testing. I don't want to actually hit any APIs and I wanted pretty reliable fake data or fixture data so that during tests I could exercise um, a, full, a full worker or full job so that it would go through the flow and then I could fake it so that say um, a card would be canceled or something would happen or I'd get a certain type of response from Stripe. And I would assert at that point that the follow-up email wasn't delivered or that the database was in a certain state. 
I didn't find that the way that Stripey Stripe or some of the other libraries were implemented was it, it didn't suit what I wanted. And the thinking was, well, there are so few different calls that I want to make that I, that's not really necessary. Um, it turned out that that wasn't as true as I thought it was, and that even just creating a, a subscription, um, you have to, you know, there's a, I think three calls you have to make. You have to create the customer, you have to attach a payment method, you have to create the subscription, uh, then you have to set the default payment method. There's just a there's a lot more involved than just a single call. Going back, I would probably try to use something to um, stub out the actual HTTP response rather than using a, a mock fixture kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but at this point, since it's working and it's kind of easy to modify, I probably won't rip it out and start again. Right. So when it comes to that Stripe setup, did you end up rolling with their new APIs like Payment Intense and you know the SEA compliant one? Yes, uh, which made that whole thing a bit harder as well. Um, yeah, it's always good times to get that one set up. Although now I heard starting from maybe earlier this year, like January 2020, the docs have gotten pretty good. Do you recall like what your experience was to get things set up? Um, reading a lot of docs, some old and some new, and it was really hard to tell which ones were which at the time and reading through a lot of guides. It, I mean, the guides are extensive and I, I really can't complain compared to other things. Combined with the API, there were certain things that I was looking for exact flags, like started when paid licenses started, we did a seven day free trial. That turned out not to be a great idea, but getting the free trial to work in the first place um, required sending another, an additional flag. But there are, I think, three different flags that you can send, and those aren't covered in the guides very well. So you have to kind of go look at the API reference, and then they have little blurbs about that. But it required a little bit of trial and error in the, in the test sandbox mode as well to make sure that, you know, trial from plan is the one you need to use. You don't want to override the timing and, and that kind of thing. But it's a really complex service, so it's understandable that there'd be that much to it. Yeah, as I mean, so we don't do trials anymore, so we just flip that from true to false. Uh, it turned out not to be the best idea to give away a seven-day free trial for something that people could hold, just steal easily. Right, although I guess in that case, though, they wouldn't be able to get a newer version of that in the future without a, a valid license, right? No, that's true. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't. Uh, another interesting part of using, I guess, piggybacking is a better way to say the hex package is that we can periodically pull each of the various um, keys. So, uh, you know, I could say Parker at Soren2 is the key. I can get the list of users, match up the emails against the ones in the system, and I can see the last time that any of those keys were used. Um, so you can tell exactly when and if somebody has fetched one of the packages. Oh, nice. So did you find yourself building out like a pretty elaborate admin UI that's private just to you? There is an admin UI. I would say it's not that elaborate. Um, it turned out, I mean, it's it's so easy to fetch the, the data and then build up a table from it, uh, that the admin section's fairly small. Um, it's mostly just around managing users. Um, one other kind of interesting thing is that even though there are custom fonts and custom styles and there's a little bit of analytics, there are no external requests on the site. There's no Google Analytics hookup. There's no um, external fonts. So there's no tracking of any kind to check which pages were actually getting traffic. And if they were getting traffic, we built in 
our own little uh, analytics kind of thing. They just it's it's a plug. As you visit a page, it makes a little record for that time. It generates you know, just a little a visit track for that page within that particular window. So per hour, it will roll them up. So it doesn't build that much data, but we can see which pages on different days have however many number of hits. Um, and then you can use just straight SQL to roll that up and aggregate it and look. So I just want to see in the past five days, what are the 10 most popular pages and what time of day were they really popular? And so after doing certain tweets or posts or whatever, you can actually go in and look at it without having to um, feed data over to Google Analytics and, and look at things in the dashboard there. Nice. Yeah, I would say your customers probably really appreciate that one. And also, you probably do too, right? It's like a lot of folks who really care about privacy just have either JavaScript disabled or explicitly blocking that with some form of tool. So you couldn't even get that data before, but now it sounds like you kind of would because it's all done server-side. Yeah, uh, which is great. Um, you know, when you have a, a blog post or something, you can get kind of stuck in a mentality of trying to watch the ticker go up or something. And so it's nice to have something that is just a, a bit more rough so you can't see super accurate information and you just kind of check every once in a while to, to see what's happening. And I mean, go through the effort of using Firefox uh, you know, for a reason. And so to just give information away for, for nothing to Google didn't really make sense. And considering how long it took to build that, I mean, it's, it was probably an hour and it's held up really well. Nice. Do you think that's something you'll open source at some point or isn't that really something that's suitable, like out of the box for any type of app? I, I don't even know if it's something that you would um, want to have as a library. Actually, it seems like a really great fit for the auth generators kind of thing that, um, that Jose and Aaron Renner worked on, where you just run a generator and now you have a few modules that you can kind of hook into in your system and you can tailor it and kind of tweak it from that. Um, but this is a function in a context, um, a schema in, a, in, in an ecto sense, and a plug module. And the plug, honestly, the call function is two lines long. It's, so it's, it's really easy to do. Uh, the majority of the work is just figuring out the right SQL queries that you want. But it's so easy, especially with Heroku, to just make a call. You just pass dash C, and then whatever your string happens to be, and you make the call to PG PSQL and you get just this nicely formatted little table back in your in your console. Right. So maybe that's a good point now to transition into your Heroku setup. So do you want to go over maybe like, you know, what type of dyno setup you have and if you're using like the paid tier of Postgres and anything else maybe like add-on wise? Sure. Um so it does use the well, I can kind of get into it, but uh so we use SendGrid to send emails. I initially started trying to use something else. Uh, one of the other kind of lower tier ones that not lower tier, but uh, free. Somebody had a free option and that turned out to not quite fit well enough. The spam handling wasn't good enough. So switched over to SendGrid, which has worked out really well. And then it uses somewhere between two and I'll scale it up to three dynos. It doesn't have to do that. That's purely to um, exercise the dashboard and open. Uh, for for multi-tier, I'm sorry for multi-node kind of handling, 
to make sure that we don't have double dispatch of jobs, uh, we don't have duplicate cron scheduling and that kind of thing. And so it's, there's no need to run that many with the kind of traffic it gets, uh, but it really helps in just being sure that when other teams or dscout or whoever else that uh, goes and tries to move into production with a bunch of different nodes, that they're not going to run into any surprises in running open in, in production. Um, and it does use the paid tier of the Postgres database, just the, the standard tier, so it's not too expensive. Um, that's probably not necessary either, but uh, there are a few reasons that we ended up going that way. When Open ship 4, it kept um, heartbeat records. Uh, that has been moved to Pro and totally reworked, so it's much less, it's much lower overhead, uh, but it kept one record per queue per second, and it kept 10 minutes worth. And so it was really easy to fill up the, the rows on a hobby tier Postgres instance. And so to work around that and then have a little bit more overhead uh, for just the, the demo server running, um, we went up to a standard tier. And also just, we don't ever want it to fall asleep. So um, it uses two professional small dynos $50 a month, and then with the Postgres database, it's another $50. So it's 100 a month just to run everything, um, even though it could definitely run on you know, like a $5 digital ocean droplet, um, but we wouldn't be quite as sure that it's going to, to meet all the production needs that we need. And this makes it super easy to upgrade the Postgres database and do whatever else. Right, because yeah, it sounds like you went down that path of maybe rolling your own Kubernetes cluster on there, but that very quickly, or maybe over a couple of weeks, you were just like, mm, no. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm sure that uh, we could have done a, like an X-Deliver uh, mix release kind of thing and just kind of done that. But that's not how I would do anything else in production, and I don't think that's how any other teams would do it. And you don't get a great sense of how, I mean, if you have a server that you're treating like a pet and not cattle, sure, I could SSH in and then authenticate an, the open organization, and then it would just work, and I would totally forget that I ever did that after six months went on. And when somebody else is asking about, well, how did you manage to authenticate when you're doing this in GigaLixer? You wouldn't have an answer for that. Whereas if you have this infrastructure that you, you, know, you, you can see your proc file, you can see your Docker file, you can see whatever else it is, you know exactly how it's running. Right, and it can be like 100% sure there's no state lingering on that server from, yeah, six months ago. Yeah, exactly. So maybe now we can go into what your deployment process looks like. So do you wanna talk us through what it's like for you to develop some type of feature and then you know promote that, maybe push it to GitHub and then eventually it makes its way onto Heroku? Like do you use CI and things like that? Yeah, uh, so we use GitHub Actions for CI. Um, it started out as Circle CI, and then I, I guess it's kind of a fashion thing, but um, it didn't it didn't make sense to have it incompatible. So Open uses GitHub Actions for CI, uh, Open Web does, and Open Pro does, and so it made sense to do the same thing for Leasemore as well. So they all use GitHub Actions and uh, test everything there. Um, the deployment is manual. Um, it's handled by a B 
beautiful little make <laughs> bake file. Uh, so there's just a, a deploy which builds and releases. And so it uses the Docker to build it uh, and then pushes to the Heroku registry and then it uses the container release command on Heroku. Um, this started out as something that was manual rather than through CI because of the um, strict ordering that would kind of happen in figuring out which thing to deploy where. So um, you can't publish with a, what is it, a, a path dependency and you can't bundle something in and have it be a hex package. So it took a little while to figure out what the, what the ordering was. And since then, since I'm the only person that normally pushes, it's just kind of stayed that way. It would be very easy to make it into something that, that happens on master through GitHub Actions, but I haven't done that. Right. Yeah, I'm happy to see that you moved over to GitHub Actions. It's something I've been working with recently as well and finding it to be pretty nice, although I'm kind of not really adhering to, I guess, the purpose of using GitHub Actions. And I'd be curious to know if you are doing that as well. Like the high level goal, I guess, of Actions is you can write these one-off things that are actions and have them sitting up on some repo and now other people can use them. But I find for like the CI aspect, like if this is really like modifying my production server, I don't want to have to worry about running someone else's actions. Like for sure, I'm going to only be running my own actions, really. And do you find that to be the same for you or do you kind of embrace other people's actions? Uh, I'm only using my own actions. I, I mean, I think it's nice that there's the marketplace for it. Um, I'm, I'm also a little concerned. I mean, with this, with this project, I'm not too concerned about somebody else having access to it. It's a Heroku instance. There's only so much you can do. But with other things, the fact that they'd have access to private environment variables and stuff, that seems a little iffy. And it, it's gotten better. The syntax for doing some things, like connecting to a Postgres database, uh, running a matrix of jobs, uh, uh, sorry, a matrix of builds, those things were pretty hard. And so it took a little while before there were examples out there or that they just gotten, say, caching better uh, to the point where it was fast enough uh, or desirable enough to use. Because really paying CircleCI just a little bit of money is totally worth it if it's going to be many times faster. But for this, the tests run so fast that it's, it's not too much of a concern, even if they're a little bit slower on GitHub CI or GitHub Actions, which I haven't seen to be the case, but... Right. And then in your case too, like the things that take really long, you're running those locally on your own dev box for now, right? Like creating that multi-stage build. I would imagine if you did like, you know, a no cache build that probably takes, I don't know what, many minutes, right? Five, 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, it does. The recently discovered Docker build kit does speed that up, especially for, for making new builds. It is pretty quick. It's not, it's not too bad. Right. Do you happen to know maybe like roughly the before and after of using those build kit options? Hmm. I think I did post about it. I would say 30 to 40% off the time. Uh, at the same exact time, I had overhauled that, you know, used it for something that was building up Python, Rails, and Elixir, like larger production app. And in that case, it took it down by 60%. So I, I think it really depends on what's inside the container and then how many layers there are, I mean, of course. Um, and so in this case, because there are so few layers happening, it wasn't that dramatic of an improvement. Right. Even though, I mean, 30% at the minimum would be a fantastic thing, especially if it's like, you know, 10 minutes long, like that's, uh, you know, three minutes off, a, off the top. Yeah. And if I was deploying, you know, if I was doing continuous deployment 
and we had a whole team of people uh, pushing to something that is definitely worth it. But considering that all you have to do is prefix something with Docker build kit equals one, and it's magically faster, it seems totally worth it. Yep. Yeah, I imagine at some point that'll be just the default. I hope so. Um, although I've discovered that in CI, the output from it, because it tries to do uh, inline updates, you know, with like spinners and changing each line at a time, you end up with thousands and thousands of lines of output, which makes going through CI logs when there's a build failure uh, really, really difficult. Oh, yeah. You just scroll down and it's like line 8,609. Yes, exactly. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about how you plan for disasters or unexpected events. So I would imagine you have Heroku backing up your database, or do you just do like a SQL dump and put it somewhere else? It does the continuous backup. I mean, I guess it does the continuous backup, but it also does the, um, since, since it's a paid version of it and not the freed version of it. So if it crashes, it will restore from continuous backup. Uh, but then it also does nightly backups. Okay, so do you just do you trust that then fully then? Like you don't do any type of manual backups of your own? No, I don't do any manual backups. Uh, I suppose a form of manual backup would be pulling the data down locally. Um, there's no sort of privacy concern to me uh, to not have customer data on my own laptop, you know, because it's mine and it's encrypted and all that. So I will pull, I'll like I run a, a, a Postgres pull and synchronize the local data with, with whatever data happens to be there. And use that to do migrations locally and check that the data is still the way that I want it. But is that something you just run basically when you, like before you make a migration or do you do it like daily or just once in a while just to get that production data locally? Yeah, every once in a while. Uh, otherwise I just trust the, the daily backups from Postgres, from, from Heroku Postgres. Right. What about things like uh, like alarms and alerts? Do you get notified from Heroku if, if things start to get a little bit crazy? Like, you know, maybe the site's unreachable or the resources get a little bit high, like, you know, some type of warning that you may need to, like, up your dynos? No, I do get uh, have uptime monitoring from um, HoneyBadger and error monitoring through that. So I, I do get to hear if, if something bad is happening. I don't have any alerting set up or auto scaling kind of stuff for for resources. Right. So did something ever happen in the past where you got notified by Honey Badger, like something went wrong? Uh, no, thankfully, nothing has ever gone that wrong. Um, nice. That's a good problem not to have, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I can't complain about that. Definitely not. So what about things like? Uh, I mean, you mentioned you use them for logging as well. Like, do you just go through your logs once in a while, or do you kind of just only go through them when you have to, like some type of, you know, something happened? Oh, Honey Badger? Um, not for logging, for, for error reporting. So it automatically, it uses telemetry data from Oban. It's actually the, exactly the code that's in the readme is, is what's used in this case. Um, so whenever there's a job failure, it uses that to deliver the notification to, um, to Honey Badger. But it also is... Um, HoneyBadger is hooked up to look at the error logger from Erlang and report errors there. So if there's unexpected things that happen, uh, crashes, database timeouts, other stuff that does not happen inside of a job, then uh, I'll get an email about those things as well. Uh, or push notifications if there's, um, if there's downtime. But there hasn't been any downtime, thankfully. 
Right, it's always one of those weird things where you never know if your external monitoring services are even working because you never get notified of downtime. Because it's never that simple of things just never breaking, but I guess sometimes they are. That's true. Yeah, uh, other other services or other clients uh, have definitely had plenty of downtime notifications from uh, from Honey Badger. So I'm pretty sure it works from that sense. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if it if it's helping. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? And I would recommend that if you possibly can, keep things as open and contributable by other people as you can. When the site went up, there were typos places, and there's no way for somebody to fix it or say anything. And um, thankfully, they're kind enough to just search out an email and send an email or message on Slack or something and say, hey, you, these instructions are wrong. This thing didn't work. Right. Yeah, that's very, very good advice. Yeah, so before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Um, so I go by Soren2. My wife goes by Soren1, by the way. Uh, so I go by Soren2 on GitHub, Slack, Twitter, pretty much everywhere there. And if you'd like to check out the, the site we've been talking about, it's getopen.pro. You can see a little bit about what's available through the web and pro offering, and you can also demo open itself and, and check it out. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop a link to those in the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.